Welcome back to episode 25 of the Student Physio Podcast. This week, Lewis and myself will be joined by Matthew Wormsley. Before we begin, I would like to give a quick shout out to our sponsors at Neonic Training Solutions. Neonic is based in Shipley, West Yorkshire and operates as a student-led physiotherapy clinic. Neonic provides placement opportunities for a range of healthcare students and not just physios. Offering independent but supported patient contact cope with excellent learning opportunities, their range of placements are designed to elevate your proficiency in clinical practice and foster confidence in your professional journey. This is a fantastic placement opportunity for all healthcare students. If you're intrigued, reach out to your university's placement lead as Neonic collaborate with universities nationwide. Or if you're considering an elective, you can always go direct. So a little bit of an introduction about Matt. Matt has 18 years experience in the NHS. He's specialised in shoulders and elbows for the last eight of those. He's previously had a range of jobs, including Bradford Bulls, Bradford City, and he's worked in a range of private practices. He completed his MSc in MSK Rehab in 2013 and has worked in an advanced physio role since, and he's been working with an upper limb consultant since 2019. Interestingly, the, the pandemic created a unique opportunity for Matt. In 2020, he began to cover minor injuries in the emergency department whilst doctors were relocated to the wards in response to the ongoing pandemic. This has now expanded into a role where he works weekly in the emergency department, assessing a range of acute MSK injuries, diagnosing, imaging, and putting patients on the right pathway. And of course, I've had the pleasure of working with Matt this past seven months on my first rotation in the MSK department at St. Luke's. So, Matt, welcome to the podcast. I think I did a pretty thorough <laughs> job there, but um, if there's anything you'd like to add, fire away. Uh, I think you've filled it all in there. Thanks for having me, guys. Okay, so we're going to start with some quick fire questions, a little bit different to how we've been doing it before. So, Matt, quick as you can, but here we go. Did you always want to do MSK? I think so, yeah, yeah. Um, it was always in the uh, the plan, but the uh, I tried to be... Um, focused i almost got swayed to respiratory but yeah msk generally 80 percent of the way why the shoulder um i think find it interesting i think you can kind of um get a, a range of pathologies you uh, you can unlock the shoulder by doing a lot of different things you've got different people and the spectrum from the young to the athletes to the elderly so it just has a, a wide ranging area plus um the sporting population that i like working with as well Awesome. And what's your favourite part of your current job? It's got to be dealing with the high level patients. I mean, also the dislocators as well. I like um, the challenge of managing to get the muscle balance right and making sure that they're stable in the joint and return to sport is a big thing for, for my job. I love doing getting people back. So uh, you can gather from Brad's opening questions that today we're going to be talking about the shoulders. So we started to start with shoulders, Matt. What what would you be looking for in a past medical history when someone presents with um, a shoulder problem? Yes, it's a great question. And uh, it's one of the levelling questions where you start off with a uh, person in front of you and you've got the, the history coming at you thick and fast of what is actually white noise and what's the best thing to look for. So obviously with the shoulder, the two key things that sort of ring any alarm bells are any cardiac history or, or lung history. So mainly like smoking history, someone who might have had problems in the past, the family history of lung cancer, just because of the referral patterns down uh, into the shoulder. Um, there's also things like diabetes to be aware of, steroid use, because some people can prevent with, uh, present with uh, sickle cell or, sorry, AVN from steroid use, but they can also have sickle cell anemia, which can give you um, shoulder pains as well. Um, you've got 
uh, all sorts of things that can sort of give you, um, I, I think I'm using the amber flag in the wrong terms rather than a red flag, but people who've got gastritis, gallstones, and as before mentioned, uh, diabetes with its high link between um, frozen shoulder and, and diabetes as well. And then it's sort of moving in from your kind of, whether you get that past medical history from them on the spot or that, that sort of preempted, that sort of initial subjective assessment, what kind of questions are you asking patients and I suppose more importantly, how you word them? Well, I, I spend a lot of my time focusing on the mechanism. I, I think whilst it's almost like subjective into the objective because you're trying to get them to recreate what they, they did, it's it's key that you understand that. So obviously you can break things down from whether there's been a trauma to whether it's insidious. And then the two sort of directions you, you go in are very, very different there because with a, with a traumatic uh, shoulder injury, you're looking for certain pattern and a certain set of instances, whereas with an insidious onset, you may be digging a bit deeper. So I tend to start with the me mechanism, really pin them down on what happened because the classic answer is, oh, I'm not sure what I did. I, I'm not really sure on how it happened. Um, and I tend to change the questioning round slightly. So I'll say, well, do you remember when you weren't in pain? And can you remember a, a time when you weren't suffering with this? And then can you think of when that moment happened and what you were doing? Because with the patients that are more insidious, they might not notice the sudden onset. It might be a gradual thing. So I try and get them to think back to a time when they were not in pain. And what were they doing around that time? So have they recently changed jobs? Have they recently changed um, a big life event like moving house or something with the, with the hobbies and interests outside of work? So that type of thing sets me off. And then from a subjective side of things, I want to know about whether they fit into um, into a box, really. So I'm profiling them from word go. And no one really fits into one box, but where, where are we going with it? So are they suffering with limited movement? Are they suffering with more hypermobility? Are they suffering with stiffness? Are they suffering with weakness? And you can kind of get that from delving into the, um, the their ags and eases, really. So on the body chart, when we fill it in, we sort of go through what is your aggravating factor? What makes it feel better? And and how would you uh, how would that pain present? So how quickly would it come on, and how quickly would it resolve? So they'd be my main sort of focus is on the uh, uh, the body chart area and what you know what's bringing the symptoms on and going off, and then things that give me other flags like pins and needles, numbness, um, areas of uh, referred pain as well. So exploring it, and a lot of times when I speak to band five physios or new starters. They really struggle exploring that extra bit on the body chart. So if you've got someone who's coming with classic shoulder pain or around the anterior part, maybe the lateral deltoid, and they also come in with maybe some common extensor tendinopathy symptoms, distal um, uh, sort of neural symptoms into the median nerve, let's say, or, or into the radial nerve, they might find that they'd sort of hold off asking any more extended questions about that because they see it as maybe a secondary or a tertiary issue. But I think anything down that chain, even if it's upper or lower limb or into the trunk, it's worth expanding those questions to see whether they are linked as well. No, that's perfect. And I think you made a pretty good point there about sometimes patients don't really know what we're looking for and they don't know what information is useful. So it's really our job and especially for students to, to understand that, that you really do need to delve sometimes because patients aren't just going to, though they will give you the answers, but they don't think that the answer is the answer. So you really need to kind of probe them and prompt them into giving that information, even if they, they think they can't remember it. Absolutely. And I think sometimes we're programmed as physiotherapists to follow a script. 
and the thing is everyone's different so when you're trying to fit everything into a finite amount of time whether it be however long you get for an assessment we want to try and get to the end point which is ultimately either treating them fixing them or doing something miraculous for them but what we really want to find out is is it the proper history and the mechanism and if you get that right it really sets you up for a much better outcome with a patient moving through the assessment to, to completion really yeah perfect so as you said about assessment there we'll we'll go on to that so how do you typically approach a shoulder assessment i try and keep it simple so the the thing about shoulders as you're probably aware of is you can read reams of things and you can look at all these special tests which well, well you know what are your thoughts on special tests we might come on to that later but um there's all sorts of different positions you can put someone in there's all sorts of different pathologies you can suffer with there's all sorts of different sort of um contributing factors but i tend to keep it simple and i look at it as either a weak dysfunctional shoulder um, a loose hypermobile shoulder or a stiff shoulder and those really cover a whole host of sins so they'll cover from the uh, stiff shoulder from the oa to the frozen shoulder to um, someone who's uh, suffering with um, just a general sort of um, stiffness from secondary from an injury i suppose or a fracture so your loose hypermobiles would be our um, people who've got type 3 shoulder instability typical um, hypermobile collagen fibers maybe haven't got that proprioception and then your weak dysfunctional sort of cover a massive umbrella term all your saps your rc rps is that type of thing that maybe need a bit more motor control so that's how i'd break it down in my head and then in the assessment what i would do is i would i would again break it down really simply so i'd start to observe which is really underutilized so just from looking at someone's scapula you can see if there's any wastage, which obviously looking for muscle bulk, any patterns of wastage. So would it fit in with um, a sort of dirt, a, a myotomal pattern or any form of like um, peripheral nerve pathway? Looking at what their posture's like. So instantly as they've taken the, the, the top off, have they got a spinal scoliosis? How's the scapula set? And can, can you see any difference when you get them to move? So have they got any asymmetry? And that's just in the first sort of couple of minutes, you can pick those things up. Then you're looking at active versus passive range, which again sort of clears two of those areas where you're looking at either a stiff shoulder, which is truly stiff, or someone who's got a dysfunction, weakened dysfunctional shoulder where they've got active movement that's less than passive movement. Can I change anything? So the thing that I'm really looking for in that assessment is what can I add to the party? So what can I change? Can I actually get them to recruit better? Can I stretch them further? How can I get them to move in a better pattern? Can I get them to elevate the girdle first, set the, sh the scapula back, clench the fist and get more activation? Can I use the um, SAT recruitment, so which basically scapular assistance technique to slide that scapula up and help them get a bit more range? And if I can do those three things, I can get a pretty good idea as to which one of those three areas I'm going down, whether it be weak and dysfunctional, hypermobile, or whether we're going down that stiff shoulder route. You said there you mentioned special tests, um, and, and about talking about special tests. Um, I, I was at a course in November. Um, I went on Ben Ashworth's course, and we were talking about special tests, and I, and this is just personal experience beforehand I, from university. I feel like special tests are absolutely drummed to the within the nth degree of your life, and when you compare special tests to the upper limb to special tests to the lower limb they're a lot more fiddly and you're almost looking for 
you know, there's probably more margin of error doing an upper limb special test than there is doing a, a lower limb special test. Talking to Ben, his, his view, which was that, you know, special tests aren't really that special for the upper limb. What I, and once he kind of justified it, I think most people on the course that day would probably agree. What What are your thoughts on special tests? And no, how often be, do you... I might be a bit controversial there and go the opposite way, but I'm maybe sort of sitting on the fence a bit halfway with this. But um, I think when you're looking at special tests, it's a case of trying to understand what they're trying to do on an individual basis, which there's 120 odd of them just on shoulder dock, which is referenced and literature base so there's so many you could drown in the in the special tests and i think the the basis comes back to how well you understand that joint and how well your anatomy and physiology is of, of that area and the, the lower limb is is different in the sense that we've got the the knee which is obviously uh, not as mobile as a shoulder and then you've got the other joints which tend to sort of fit into smaller brackets of pathology and because there's such a freedom of range of movement in the upper limb especially the shoulder that's where the problem lies because as you quite rightly said if it's not being done as it's been described in the literature or if it's not being done exactly right and they are a bit fiddly what is the sense that's best then and to be honest that drops off massively because if you're not doing something as the author has described or done it at that certain test then really you can't uphold that test because it's not being done correctly now what I tend to do is, and this is going to sound like I'm sitting on the fence a little bit, and I do agree with Ben in some respects, and then I disagree in some respects, it's all about the battery. So if you look at things like the Lasla article for the SIJ and how they found that, yeah, those tests in isolation aren't great, and you could argue till the cows come home whether they test what they test, but if you put you know all five together and you see three or four out of five positive, you've got a much better understanding as to whether you've got that. So special tests for me are a go-to but i use them to sort of determine whether i've proven my null hypothesis so i tend to sort of describe what i think in my head as what i'm dealing with and then i will use a special test to prove or disprove that that is what i'm looking at and it might not be one it'll probably be a battery of them for and i have a battery in my head that i'll use for labral tears or for you know slap lesions specifically and then i might look at things as the i tend to look at the the biceps labral complex as, as an entity in itself or i might look at special tests for just cuff or and then i might go down the line of thinking well this could be actually some form of like neural deficit where they've, they've not got the suprascapular nerve working so how do i know if it's a tear or the nerve so then i might look at different things and, and go into the minutiae of whether the neck's involved or whether you could try and isolate whether you could get firing further down the chain of the brachial plexus so i think the, the sort of coming back to your point is in isolation is a special test special probably not if you know what they're actually trying to do and you can lump them together with other ones then i do really think that's where you separate your average clinician from your really good clinician so you're almost going almost to the end point and then using the special tests to work your way back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's say that I've listened to the history and they've gone down a flight of stairs, grabbed a banister, arms being ragged behind them, the right age, the right, um, they've they've heard a pop. It's felt clunky afterwards, not stable, but didn't really come out. The overhead work as well. All these things are all slap, 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 slap. And I'm thinking a lot along the lines, but there's also a potential that it could have just been 
a strain in the joint, they could have torn the cuff, they could have had a problem with the labrum at the inferior in, uh, inferior uh, area. So I'm thinking, well, what do I do? So I don't want to go down the line of going just to slap. So I'll examine like I've done before, break them down into three areas, and then look at whether I'm dealing with someone who's unstable because of that issue, or whether it's more of a pain and a dysfunction point of view. And then at that point, would I go into those special tests? And if I've got maybe four tests out of the slap that I might use, I might look at passive compression tests to assess the superior labral area. I might look at something like biceps load two. Uh, I might look at, let's say, Active O'Brien's test and then look look at them together, see if they fit what I think and then go back and think, well, if that's the case, what's happening with the biceps tendon? What, what am I thinking might be happening? So could I modify something like a new pain provocation test? Can I palpate in the area I think it'll be? Where is the pain? Is it in the area I expect it to be? So I'll almost go back then and almost clarify those points with the patient and, and tell them satisfied that I'm thinking are on the, the right lines. Now, obviously, that is oh, 18 years experience that's led you to that point, which is great. And you can have that reverse almost scientific hypothesis of proving yourself wrong to rule out different conditions. Now, as a new Band 5 starter or someone just coming into MSK or a student, what sort of test clusters would you be recommending in recommending to look at to rule out different pathologies or rule in pathologies? Well, I think you've got to try and think about what's your quick wins as a new starter because not everyone's going to walk in with a really specific slap lesion. They are they are more rare than we think. They were they were over diagnosed years ago on MRIs and probably from overhead working, but. The, the main things that we're seeing with people is sort of middle-aged rotator cuff-related pain syndrome, if you want to put it as an umbrella term, um, and subacromial pain syndrome. And then you're looking at people who've got um, dislocations in, in young age, which we do see a fair decent amount of that in our setting. Um, and then from, from there, you've got other things like cervical referrals and OA, and they probably, and frozen shoulder as well, they probably make up, if I've just listed them off the top of my head, 80% of what you'll see in, in sort of secondary care and primary care as well. Um, so you, if you're starting off with that, it's almost like mind sweeping. If you can sort of test those thoroughly, then you've, you've covered your bases and anything that comes up with a 20% that's not as classic and needs these more specific tests, that's the time for a band five to be reflecting, reading, looking at what's the best thing to do. So I could list all the different ones for different things, but there's so many different small variables. I mean, just in labral tears, you could, I, I mean, I don't know whether you'd be able to diagnose or differentiate with it hands-on, but alpses and haggle lesions and just your bog standard bank carts, bony bank carts. There's a whole raft of different things within one area. So I won't get too bogged down starting off with, with um, you know, batches of tests. It's uh, it's worth maybe having a look at the, um, <clears throat> excuse me, looking at a few of the um, key articles. So there's um, there's different ones that, that sort of basically cover um, looking through the whole gambit of these special tests, the ones that are the classics, and then trying to work out the sense and specimen, which ones you'd link together. Um, the name has just evaded me from, from my mind at the minute, but I know off the top of my head in a second it'll come to me. But that, that would be where I'd start as a new new starter. And then from that point, I'd probably cover those sort of bases that you'd, you'd mentioned before, um, uh, that's sort of what I've mentioned before, and then and try and work from there and, and just looking at things like simply 
have I tested the rotate cuff well? Have I actually isolated those motor units? Um, have I looked at whether the joint integrity is, is integral? Have I looked at the stability well? Um, have they got just simple things like passive range of movement active? What's the difference? And if you get that right, that's such a big you know tick in the box. And then you can go on to the more complex stuff after that. Oh, perfect. I think we were, we were going to come on to this a little bit later, but I think it kind of fits in with what we were just saying then. So just considering that the MSK shoulder um, setting that we've just been working in, what stages are we actually like seeing um, patients and like the different physios through band five, six, seven? When are we actually seeing the patients in their journey with this injury? As in the, sorry to, to go back over the question. So as in what in the NHS setting are you seeing or, or from what I've just explained? Yeah, so just as in your, your to our like general um, like outpatients department, right. obviously you've got like your urgents versus routines, post-op, yeah. ED clinic referrals, that sort of. Well, the brilliance of working where I work in Bradford, you get the whole gambit. So you've got things, we've got great links with the uh, emergency department. So you get things in from probably two weeks on from an injury. And also two weeks on from uh, surgery, we, we seldom see them before that because they get followed up by the ward staff. And then they look at their acute management from when they're wearing a sling, things like that. Um, then we've got this whole raft of the classic RCRPS, frozen shoulder, um, you know, long-standing uh, cervical radiculopathy that have been misdiagnosed as shoulder problems. And that sort of fits in that sort of subacute area. So that could be any time from six weeks on to about you know like a year and then the uh uh on the end of that you've got your oa and you've got your degenerative joint disease so i mean i'd even include a rheumatoid in that if they've got a rheumatological team um you you're dealing with things that have got long-term conditions so people that might not be able to uh get out of pain have an obvious pathology but are not quite ready for an arthroplasty so you might be looking at trying to maintain the health of the cuff increased deltoid that type of thing and that'd fit with your long, uh, your uh, massive cuff tears as well. People who've actually got a problem that can't be operated on, and they have to be managed conservatively, and, and we really have to put the time and effort in to get that working. Because sometimes it takes six months to eighteen months if you're uh, really unlucky. Um, so the, we've seen the whole gambit, right from acute two weeks right the way through to maybe a year plus. Yeah, that's, that's a really good summary there. I think something that I found hard, especially at the, the start of my rotation, was the the chronicity of quite a lot of the patients, whether it was like their second, third time coming to physio for the same condition, or even just it's it's been a waiting list since from the backlog from COVID. And this has now become a bit more chronic. And I felt that was quite hard and I wasn't really prepared for that initially. So how does almost like you had I don't think your assessment changes but how does all the rehab or the the management for the chronic conditions change around the shoulder so I think you can sort of break your question into two parts there so looking at your experience from people who've been through the revolving door of physio and it's not helped it's not got that uh, that improvement it's sort of finding out why and I think when you start out as a band five or a newly qualified it's difficult to actually know that because it's not you've not got that confidence and that experience to sort of say, well, you've been through this, so what what else have we got to offer? So my advice to anyone listening out there that's um, 
starting out is to maybe understand the pathways a little bit more or understand the patient journey from where you go from the beginning of the injury all the way through and what other uh, agencies and things are out there. So things that are coming to the fruition at the minute, like social prescribing, rethinking pain that's out there in the community and what when does that become the patient's main need and, and want? So have we actually inputted what we've inputted? And it's quite straightforward in my mind for that first part of the question as to what I actually do as a job. So I'm there to strengthen, to restore, and to try and educate. So I'm looking at trying to do those three things that join. And there might be many barriers to that. One is, you know, obviously the physiological barriers, which is what we're good at understanding because we understand the physiological healing times and what the deficits are. But as we know, there's psychological barriers, there's environmental barriers, there's social barriers. And those can be as big a barrier as the other bits. It's how we deal with those and how we gain that experience to to actually help push those people on. And there are agencies out there that help with that and more specialist physios in pain management and other you know, colleagues I've worked with before that are absolutely excellent at that, that you can maybe transfer them within the department. The, the sort of second part of the question is how do we change our management? How do you as a new starter come into that and think, how am I going to manage this person? who's been in and out of the revolving door, probably seen someone more uh, specialised than me or more experienced, maybe had a lot more input. What, Where do I fit in? And I think it's about revisiting that journey. So don't be um, scared or underconfident or you know worried about going down the line and saying, right, tell me exactly what you've had. And holding the patient to a bit of account, really. Do you remember your exercises? How many times were you doing your exercises? Have you um, stuck at them for over six months? As we know that, you know, to get strength and conditioning changes just for a healthy person, you're looking at 12 to 18 weeks. So add a pathology in there, you could progress that to four to six months. Ha um, who who were you seeing and, and what, uh, what input did they have hands on? And trying to really understand about what they've had as a service. And if you think what they've had and then what they describe is appropriate, then it might be that you look at other options and time and sometimes referring on. But if they've not really sort of drumming down to them and saying, this is something that we can help you with, but we've got to get you on board with uh, doing this regularly. And if it's come back or the pain's not gone away since you've had this previous session of physiotherapy, the only thing that we can do differently this time is either stick to the exercises or try and um, get engaged more with the process and maybe change the exercises up and make them a little bit more user-friendly. So is it a case more of getting your, re-engaging them with what they were looking to buy into in the first place? Absolutely. I mean, engagement is key with any sort of patient that you're dealing with, whether it's someone who's really orthopedic and when I say that someone who's got a very much a defined injury this is the time period it's going to get better or whether you've got someone who's got other barriers that maybe has taken longer or they've got a lot more complex to them if you don't sell the idea of physio to the patient or you don't sell the idea that you're going to help them get better on that journey you've already kind of lost so in some yeah. respects confidence has got a lot to deal with it but then you've got to pack that up with knowledge as well as you go through there and that rebreeds that confidence so it's about, I think, sticking to your lane, knowing what your limitations and knowledge are at any point in your career, me included, or people who are all specialists in other areas. And then when you ask something within that sort of area, really expanding on it and giving them as much information as you can. And when it's something that's not in your area of expertise, referring to someone that, that knows, so you'll get the clarity on it later from someone, um, you know, seeking help within the sort of NHS or the private sector, whatever you can refer on to. And just researching things and reflecting as a practitioner each time you find something difficult, going back and thinking, 
where could I have sent that person? What could I have known better, you know, differently or what could I have done differently that would have helped them to get down that journey uh, in, a, in a better way that's more um, speedy for them and, and with a better outcome? Just, just before we move on, I want to put that point a little bit more. Having sort of been over a group of BAM fives, and, and I'm not just saying it just because Brad's here, what are some of the common mistakes that new grad that you see new grads making around those sort of slightly more complex cases? Well, the the, the sort of general theme is that the the over basically people become overwhelmed and they become overwhelmed because it's a new scenario. So what I would sort of recommend is to try and take a deep breath, take a minute, think about what you're there to do. And it's knowing your role, it's sticking to your role and thinking I'm here to help to um, educate, strengthen, restore that type of thing. Can I do any of those things today? So the main main things is it band five is rushing out the cubicle, red faced. Oh, I've got this patient and they're just sort of like, debunk on you which is fine that's what we're there for but it's like a almost like a verbal dump of what the person has experienced and how can you help me how could this and the, the honest answer is sometimes you can't and what you, you've got to sometimes just look at the whole scenario and think what can i what can i add in so i think um from a an assessment point of view it might be that the band fives aren't as comfortable at digging deeper into that social history or that previous history of physio and and then having that honest conversation with the patient as to say well what this is what i can help you with what are you actually looking for moving forward because when you start out as a physiotherapist the main thing you expect people are wanting to get out of is pain and that's an understanding that the patient and the physio already has before they've walked through the door but what we don't say is that subset of things that people are wanting to get back to Things like, oh, well, I can't reach up to get my keys from the uh, locker at work or I'm unable to, you know, clean the windows or I can't, you know, get dressed even as simple as that. Or I can't, you know, complete personal cares, which is a really big thing for people. And we focus on pain. And I think sometimes we've got to sort of say, well, at the minute, I can help restore the movement, restore the strength and, and help to educate you. But I am not here to take your pain away because I'm not a painkiller and I'm not someone who can just magically ever want. You might put it in better terms out, but what I'm here to do is let's look at how we can get you to your next goal and what are you wanting to get to. And whilst we do that, there's a strong link between increased movement, increased strength, increased physicality that might increase your, um, sorry, decrease your pain levels uh, and try and look at it from a different angle rather than looking at it purely on, I need to get you back to full range of movement, full strength, and then your pain will reduce. How does that resonate with you, Brad, having kind of went through that phase yeah i think um it was all all very true and i've, I've been guilty of just going and, and dumping especially on that um but i think the taking a breath coming outside of the cubicle and just kind of processing what's going on even if you just go back in you don't speak to anybody else but just giving yourself time to think that was one of the the key things and then I don't think we can state enough how important it is to to know what you're there for, especially in Bradford. These people are coming with tons of problems and a lot of it is social and psychological. And at the end of the day, that's not really our role, especially in an outpatient that's focusing on MSK. Now, there is people whose role that is, but it's not ours. And sometimes it can be very difficult to explain that to a patient, especially when you might be the first face they've seen in 12 months since they spoke yeah. to the gp on the phone and they just want to tell you everything they want you to solve all their problems but in the nicest way possible 
you're not that person and not everybody is going to be able to solve all those problems. So really clearly going, this is what we can do for you. This is what I'm here to help you with. If you want to engage with that, because it's a two-way street, then we can work together to get to get these improvements, these outcomes. But if you kind of take that role where you come out of uni and you're like, I want to help everyone, I want to make everyone's life better, you're going to fail pretty quickly because you're not going to be able to change these people's lives. You can't go home with them and make sure they're doing their exercises and help them look after the disabled child, for example. They're things that are outside of your scope. So I think knowing what you want to do and knowing what your role is to do and then yeah coming away taking a breath and just going okay what am i actually going to do about this and not just having to freeze when you're actually in the cubicle with the with the patient absolutely and i think as well when when we're looking at our role i think things have changed maybe in the last sort of 20 years so we did take much more of a forward step in the like last 10 years with pain and the understanding with uh, i mean all the experts online at the minute and twitter you just need to do a quick search you can see how you know vastly improved the knowledge on on pain and living with pain has, has gone um and and there's some great physiotherapists out there that can do um that side of things where they can understand the person's social history and understand the, the barriers and really help them and that is an, such an underrated skill and i think the way that things have been set up maybe in the local area for us at the minute is that they're trying to get the ones who are more outpatiency based msk um thinking to be more on the on that line of the, the treatment and delivery um but we do need to sometimes remember we are the first person that's going to see them face to face especially with the new ways that gps are working and sometimes just being understanding and listening and saying i i, I can't even understand what you're going through but i'm, I'm listening to you and it sounds it sounds awful can be a massive massive you know tre- piece of treatment and it's um it's a skill in itself to be a good listener and even if you can't do anything to help at that point just acknowledging what they're going through can just be the the thing that they need to to hear and sort of being a sympathetic ear and asking them if they've got any of the things in place you know have you got any family around you helping you out uh, what's your friends network like and like you said brad quite quite well is there are other things out there to help and i don't think we've ever been in a position where I've known as many different agencies that you can refer to outside of uh, the NHS, which would actually input in the community. Um, and the, if the physios that are listening or the, the, the students that are listening want to check out a really good resource, the Treacle website is absolutely fantastic, packed with you know local in, uh, innovatives and things that people can be referred to, which really help us out and add more strings to the bow on a, on a physio who maybe hasn't got those chronic pain skills and hasn't developed coping strategies at that point. Just another quick note about Neonic. If you are in the Bradford or Shipley area and would like to get some help with an injury or long-term condition and private physiotherapy is simply just not affordable for you, then Neonic may have the solution. Offering a free initial appointment and your subsequent five follow-up appointments only costing £20 total, Neonic offer an extremely affordable physiotherapy service. Don't worry, the price does not reflect the quality of care you will receive. The students are supervised by expert physiotherapy practitioners that have a wealth of experience from a range of different backgrounds. If you would like to find out more about the services Neonic offer, whether that's from a student or patient perspective, you can find out more at neonic.co.uk and we'll leave the link in the show notes. I think we'll move back to, to what we were going to talk about earlier, which is 
these two unique roles that you've got. So obviously they've come about in different ways, but one of them's working in the emergency department clinics. So you're seeing very acute injuries and then you're working with the orthopedic consultant as well, um, which is obviously the other side of that, the, the really chronic conditions that are now looking at surgery. Could you explain a little bit about just what you do in this role just day to day? Yeah, so um, on a on a weekly basis, I do one or two uh, emergency department clinics. So it consists of seeing 10 new patients, four follow-ups in each one. Um, and what we do is we get a brief history taken by the EMP or the uh, emergency nurse practitioner on the, on the shop floor of uh, A&E where they'll come in, present with a quite a an acute injury compared to what we deal with. So we're talking in hours rather than days. Um, they'll, they'll go through the screening process. They might think there's a soft tissue injury. So we're really there for like that soft tissue um, screening tool where you might think someone's got either, um, and I see lower limb as well, so like ACL, um, biceps tear, pec tear, um, rotate of tear, tears in general, sprains, strains, dislocations. And um, what we're there to do is basically... Um, quickly assess them and get them to the right management so we're missing out many different steps along the way where they might have been sent back to the gp or they might have gone straight to an orthopedic clinic a fracture clinic a virtual trauma clinic they might have gone back to physiotherapy and we're there to try and sort of sift out the ones who need immediate surgery within a sort of two to three week window sift out the ones that need an intervention maybe it might be some form of injection or something and sift out the ones that need physiotherapy. And the majority of our patients do just need the conservative management, but the ones that we do pick up, we're extremely effective with. Uh, the second role that I have once a week, I do um, like an extended clinic uh, with a consultant in upper upper limb. And um, what we look at there is we've got in sort of the other end of the spectrum. In. So we'll get people that have maybe got degenerative joint disease or have got a rotator cuff tear, um, a labral lesion that needs something doing to them. But we also get people that have not slipped through the net, but have come through to our doors that maybe haven't had that conservative management. And again, we're looking then to see what can we input conservative or operatively or even interventionally? And, and is it the right time for them? Are they the right candidate? What's the outcome likely to be? Um, and they would then either get listed, investigated, or they have further physiotherapy and conservative management. How does your assessment change um, in ED in comparison to say doing the the consultancy clinic? Well, I think Brad can uh, vouch this as he's observed me in the uh, ED clinic. So the first big difference is you're a little bit more gentle in the uh, ED clinic because they're, <laughs> they're a heck of a lot more sensitive, having had just uh, a couple of days to uh, to get over their injury. So the ones that sort of see us in orthopedics, if they've come through and they're quite acute, then you might think of those um, uh, that type of scenario. But then the ones that have had it for a bit longer, you can maybe test them out a bit further and make um, a bit more of an informed decision on, on your, your handling. But in, in essence, nothing. The thing that changes is the algorithm. So the algorithm in my head in ED is um, I'm screening for acute trauma. It might be time sensitive to whether they need an intervention. So like your triceps tears, pec tears, they need to be operated on in three weeks uh, and biceps tears as well. Whereas your your rotator cuff tears, you've got a little bit longer, but equally you want to know whether you you know what size of tear are you dealing with. Is this something that's going to be catastrophic for that person from an age point of view and what they do for a living? 
Whereas from an orthopedic point of view, the algorithm's different and it's did they require surgery or what workup they had, what would they need to maximize their effectiveness? Um, which intervention would I feel be the best for the patient based on their age, based on the, the history, what they're telling me, the symptoms, based on the job and the hobbies, etc. Um, and also managing patients' expectations in the setting is, is different as well. So someone who's in a lot of pain who's just dislocated the shoulder and they're in a sling their expectation level might be i'm not going to move this arm ever again i need to get out of this pain and how am i going to get my arm functioning for work whereas someone who's been recurrently dislocated gets their range of movement back quickly their expectation levels might be that they want to get back to crossfit and doing handstands again and they want the surgery to um, try and stabilize them and it's knowing how different those expectations being how you manage them in each setting really and do you think working so like with with dr jones and ed clinic and mr gandhi and in the orthopedics do you think that's changed how you either work in your physiotherapy setting or like your understanding of the whole pathway or just knowledge gained from from working with the doctors oh hugely hugely um so as we've first mentioned at the beginning. So I completed my master's, my MSc in 2013. And anyone who's gone through that process, it's a really, really good way of getting to be a really well-rounded clinician and also learning a lot of stuff under an intense learning process that really sticks with you. So you remember those things for your career and you really do see that difference in how you start to uh, to work as a clinician. So I remember seeing quite a difference in my, cl in my clinical practice after I'd completed that in, in 13. And I didn't get to work with Dr. Jones, I think, until around about maybe early 2018, 19, before the pandemic, COVID pandemic. And the same with Mr. Gandhi was a bit later, but a similar time. And my clinical practice from working with those two guys till now has immensely changed. I'd leave it for other people to say whether it's improved, but it's immensely changed. Um, so yes, I'd, I understand the pathway much more. So I would have dealt with an acute patient before at sort of two weeks, and I think that was super acute. And when you've worked on the shop floor of the emergency department in minors, or you do the ED clinic, you know, acute hours, it's day, you know, one day, two days. So it's that's massively different. <clears throat> how I practice, um, I, I understand a lot more about the imaging, a lot more about the um, referral for imaging, a lot more about the um, how that's going to impact on surgical planning, how that's going to make a difference in someone's management of the labral tear. It's just infinitely added a lot more knowledge to my um, portfolio, but at the same time, there's always more to learn. There's always more to develop on. Um, and there's always more to improve upon as well. So by coming to this um those two consultants as a physiotherapist, we've managed to change the, the pathway of the glenohumeral joint dislocations quite dramatically. And we've seen a really good change in, in the outcomes of that subgroup. And that's been audited. And that's something that by doing a multidisciplinary approach between different consultants, physiotherapists, nurses as well in the, in the ED, um, as well as um, other clinicians makes a huge difference to patient care. Do you find, um, sort of having worked sort of directly with the doctors and consultants, that their perception changes as well? And the only reason I ask that is because I find that some of the surgeons that um, I've had patients who have had operations, the approach that the consultants take post-op can be quite reserved still. 
and they're maybe not i don't want to say up to scratch but it, there's a lot a lot of the rehab now is a lot more aggressive early on than what it used to be and some of the consultants are still very protective post-op yeah that is a great question is that i think we're blessed in bradford we've got some absolutely brilliant orthopedic surgeons from a point of view of how they integrate with therapy i mean Obviously, they're great anyway, what they can do, but the um, I have amazing dialogue with both the upper limb surgeons in Bradford, um, and they take on board our points. But equally, it's a two-way street because um, I'll give you an example. When I first started working with uh, Mr. Gandhi, we were having a discussion about frozen shoulders, and uh, we get quite a lot of uh, good outcomes from hydrodistension injections. So for anyone who's not sure about what they are, it's basically a saline solution that's injected into the glenhumeral joint and it expands the capsule from inside out, allowing the patient, therefore, to move a bit more um, quite quickly after. And they're administered by radiology and under either fluoroscopy or under ultrasound, dependent on the practitioner. And I was very much a fan of this because I'd seen the outcomes from, from therapy. So people are coming with diabetes, type 1, type 2, type 3, um, sorry, stage 1, stage 2, stage 3 frozen shoulders, having had these and had really... Uh, good improvements and I could see that from a functional point of view from a proms point of view from a an outcome point of view and then Mr Gandhi had this discussion with he's like well what but how do you think this is working because when I'm going in I'm seeing someone who's got a diabetic frozen shoulder or something that's not moved for 18 months I can go in and I can see that my instruments are actually bending with the strength of the capsule when I'm trying to get in there to either augment the capsule manipulate or do whatever that the, they're trying to do so I think hearing that as a therapist, you're thinking to yourself, well, is, you know, all these different controversial ideas about frozen shoulder, frozen brain, frozen uh, shoulder, whether it's actually um, the body that's not, you know, uh, the brain that's not connecting to the, to the shoulder and are we not using it correctly? Or is it just the fact that we've got this horrible pathology that gets so fibrosed? Are we actually stretching the capsule when we do it? And I've got to say, it opened up a whole debate again for me where I felt like I was kind of, happy with our management and that I felt that with a HDI and with hands-on therapy we did make a difference and um, so we've done another audit study results are coming out quite positive for HDIs but interestingly only in the first um, sort of um, stage stage one of the capsulitis and that's from collective working so he's seen things through um, a scope in a shoulder and can actually see the actual tissue and we sometimes remove ourselves from that and yes we can get quite um good outcomes and we're evidence-based and everything else but it's good to marry the two together and i think that's why we tend to across the nation see more of a conservative approach from the orthopods because they're in there they're seeing what they've done they know about those anchors and how long you know how much tension they've got under and we look at the whole and we look at the fact that if we do a movement it's not just coming from that part of the joint it's coming from the whole kinetic chain yeah so yeah i think we we're lucky we've got a great going on with the consultants we actually come up with the um uh, post-operative protocols in collaboration so we sit down together as a, a for me the other app and two consultants and discuss them um so it's a collaborative approach but yeah it's um it's moving forward and uh it's good to hear both sides of, of the argument and <clears throat> change the change appropriately perfect you got anything else lewis or should we should we move on from there no you can move on yep have enough Perfect. So we will 
move on to the next three questions. Thank you for answering all those um, previous questions, Matt. There were some great answers there. So these are the, the three general questions that we ask all of our guests. So the first one is, what would you say the three most important behaviours or traits are for a physiotherapist in your experience and why? Three most valuable traits. So what have I needed of my career? <laughs> um, number one, I think, has got to be patience because we are we are working at speed. We've got a lot to think about. We've got a lot of different external stresses. And I think if you're able to listen to the patient and really take the time, you end up with more time because you can get to the bottom of it quicker. And there's a recent study done that if you let a patient speak for a minute and a half, they'll pretty much tell you everything they need to. And it's having that ability to let go because initially when you start practicing, someone goes off on a, on a speech and they can go off on a tangent for five, 10 minutes. And it's almost like having those motivational interviewing skills where you can bring someone back to task, but you let them feel like they're controlling the conversation. So patience with a patient would be number one. Um, what else do I think you need? I think is a trait being a good scientist and an investigator? I think so. I think you've got to have that investigative type of sort of brain. So even if you get into patternable scenarios where you can actually come up with a uh, an X plus Y equals Z scenario for a lot of things, you've still got to try and question your own practice so you don't get lazy. So I think that natural inquisitiveness is, is in built in as mainly, but it is actually a, a massive trait to have for... Um, to be a good physiotherapist and that would sort of combine with the logical thought process so you, you you're going down that algorithmic thinking so you're trying not to miss anything but you're going down that sort of uh, that that sort of pathway and then maybe i don't know if this is linking with the first part that i i sort of say but understanding and especially as i've gone through into more of a so i have a really split role so i also manage pe people as well and I think as you get older and you see what people are going through, whether it be a staff member or patients or just the general public, I think having that understanding, I think COVID's taught us a lot of this because people have gone through the mill, um, that yes, this is just another patient to you and you're sat in front of them and you've got a set of jobs you want to do, fill the notes in, get to the diagnosis, give them the TheraBand that you're going to give them and uh, book them back in. But you've got to understand the individual that's sat in front of you and be empathetic with that understanding as well so that you get a good outcome. So to summarise, probably patience, um, empathetical understanding and a, a logical scientific approach. Oh, they're brilliant. I think very, very unique ones. I don't think we've had them before, have we, Lewis? Uh, definitely not the sort of methodical approach, which is probably something that everyone tries to do but doesn't consciously think about doing it as such. Um, Matt, what excites you the most about the future of physiotherapy then? I think we've gone through a few dawns with the physiotherapy sort of boom and bust where it's sort of like taken off its infancy in like the 1980s where um, it was new, it was radical, things were getting prescribed as physiotherapy rather than we were coming up with the ideas in the 90s the Australian research took off and then we followed suit and things became much more sports based around the sports grants in 
sort of Australia leading up to Sydney and then we got them in the early 2000s and things and, and physio really boomed at that point and that was sort of like a really exciting time to be involved and then there's been sort of like waves of it being up and down and, and, and things in the sort of recent past but the thing that sort of strikes me is whether it's sort of an excitement a trepidation as to where we're going or whether it's a bad thing is the technology so the big thing that happened in covid was the virtual assessment whether you like it or not it's there to stay it's something that people do regularly but we've got a lot of opportunity to do innovative things where we're linking up apps technology ai moving forward uh, we've got an innovative uh, set of staff in bradford and one of the girls down in the plaster room um, Charlene, I don't think she'd uh, mind me mentioning her name, came up with a QR code for pots. So when you put a Plaster Paris on or um, one of the new um, fiberglass ones, they come with a QR code that you scan and it tells you how to care for it, what you need to do as the patient who's in it. Because she realised that people are going through the NHS really quickly, they're getting these put on and you're out the door and it's like a conveyor belt. So I think technology, AI especially, because what we do as therapists is amazing with our hands and what we can fix and what we can actually do and the more time we can spend doing that and the less time doing the bureaucracy and the explaining and the better in my opinion and what we've got the chance to do with ai is to put things out there um, where you can get the information that's evidence-based to the patient at the right time in the right setting but offer our hands-on skills without having to go through all that and it gives them a bit more time to have that treatment Excellent. I think I said something similar about technology when, when I first answered that question. But yeah, it's a really nice take on, on where it can go and the possibilities that, that technology in the future definitely does have. Okay, on to the final question, Matt. So are you satisfied? Am I satisfied? So <laughs> it depends on which angle you're looking at from, whether it's more of the this podcast or the <laughs> my, my career. But looking at my... Uh, whether I'm satisfied with what I've done 18 years in the NHS I always thought I'd go private um, I always thought I'd go into sport um, and I've done neither I've stuck with NHS and yes I am satisfied um, I've had a great career from a point of view of uh, enjoyment um, thus far and I've I worked with so many great people we've had lots and lots of innovative physiotherapists that have come through our, our doors and they've all taught me something along the way and I honestly wouldn't have done anything different. What the future might hold with uh, what's the, the, the pressures in the NHS at the minute and things that are going on in the news, well, I'll have to watch this space. But to answer your question in one word, yes, I am satisfied. No, I was just going to say, it's always good when someone just gives a simple answer <laughs> to that question. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, yeah, thank you very much uh, for coming on, Matt. I think it's been great. You've given given loads of information for, for our listeners and um, hopefully everyone can, can take something yeah, away from that. Yeah, just as a follow-up from one of the earlier questions, my brain went blank. You asked me about the algorithmic, um, looking at different tests. If the, the listeners want to look up the Hedges articles, I think 2008, and then I've forgotten the other year, it was a couple, sometime after that, maybe 2012 to 15. Um, they break them down really nicely as to what the sense and specificities are and which ones should be used in conjunction with each other. So that's a nice starting point. But um, as you asked me, my brain had gone completely blank at the author there. Yeah, that's that's well remembered. Yeah, we'll we'll get them in the uh, the description if anybody wants to um, to have a look. Perfect. So that's it for episode twenty five of the podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening, and please send us any feedback you have to our Instagram page. 
And as always, don't forget to follow us on Spotify by typing in the Student Physio Podcast and follow our Instagram and Twitter at Physio Podcast One. Thank you very much for listening and bye for now.